Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, joined today by Dr. David Jankalo, who is a cardiologist in private practice at Netcare Linksfield Hospital. Dr. Jankalo, welcome back. It's always good to have you on the show. Yeah, please, David. Thank you for joining us. I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to chatting you about. So what are we going to be speaking about today, about uh, angina, angina awareness and prevention? So, um, as you know, um, the South African Heart, Heart Association, every year in partnership with the European Society of Cardiology and various pharmaceutical companies, holds this Angina Awareness Week. And that, that's what we've been doing uh, for the last month. So to put into perspective for you and your listeners, and uh, once again, thank you for the opportunity. Um, if I could explain simply, the, the heart is a muscular pump that pumps blood and oxygen to the entire body. And every time you exert yourself or exercise or walk, um, walk around the shops, walk up the stairs, the heart has to beat harder and faster. There's a big pipe. It's the biggest artery in the body. It's called the aorta that comes out the heart and it arches in the chest and gives branches basically to supply blood and oxygen to every single organ and tissue. And that really goes down to the legs. Now, as it leaves, there are three little arteries called the coronary arteries that supply the heart muscle with blood and oxygen. And that's really what we're talking about is the, the coronary arteries. There's a left coronary artery which divides. That supplies the heart muscle with about 60 to 70% of the requirements of blood and oxygen. And um, the right coronary artery supplies the rest. The right coronary artery meets a branch of the left in the circumflex um, behind the heart. So if you imagine an irrigation system in your garden, it's not dissimilar. But it's a complicated because the blood vessels, um, the blood vessels are not uh, rigid pipes. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Dischem Medical Monday. We're speaking to Dr. Dave Jankalo and we're speaking about angina. Sorry, Dave, about that uh, interruption for an ad break. For plenty of time now, you're speaking about the supply to the heart and the coronary arteries and that they aren't hard fixed pipes. Do you want to carry on from where you are? They are organs with multiple layers. They respond to um, many messengers, chemical signals that they relax and dilate. And also those pipes, like all the other arteries in the bodies, can be influenced by lots of other come back to just now. Now, if you suddenly block one of those vessels off, um, it's analogous to imagine you've got an irrigation system in your garden and uh, a portion of the irrigation now doesn't uh, doesn't work and you've now gone on holiday for a month and the rest of the garden is being watered. That area that is not being watered will start to, to die. And that's what happens when one has a heart attack. If you suddenly block the vessel off, you have a heart attack. And the medical term for that is called a myocardial infarction. Now, the underlying disease to this is called atherosclerosis, which is a fibrofatty degeneration of blood vessels. And that can affect the, the vessels in the heart, the blood vessels going to the brain, the aorta going down to the legs, 
or the arteries in the legs. Um, and that atherosclerotic disease, this fibrous fatty degeneration, is influenced by many, many factors. I'll come back to that. But when you block one of the heart arteries off, you have a myocardial infarction. But angina suggests that there is a narrowing in one, two, or three of those heart arteries because that person would literally complain of a squeezing, a tightness, a heaviness, a burning, a pressure sensation. Many patients would will describe it differently. But the most important factor the, is that this is provoked by physical exertion or, or, or exercise and also emotion. So severe anxiety and stress can provoke it. So what we want to do is our angina awareness campaign in the, with, within the South African Heart Association is to create an awareness amongst the public that if you are experiencing chest discomfort, that is provoked by physical exertion, then you should be consulting your general practitioner, probably should be referred to either a physician or a cardiologist for further investigation because bringing an awareness to this condition will lead to patients actually being diagnosed. We worry about angina. When we talk about angina, we talk about stable angina and unstable angina. So stable angina is the person that he knows he has the disease, but his symptoms are predictable, that he knows when he walks up the hill to the bus stop, he might get chest pain. He may stop and then put a tablet, what we call a nitrate, under his tongue. The symptoms will disappear, and then he's able to carry on. Now, stable angina is predictable, but unstable angina is any anginal syndrome that has changed or progressed. So we're particularly worried about patients who come to us to say that my symptoms of chest pain are much more severe. They're coming on with less physical exertion. They're taking much longer to go away. And that's a, a, a that's a warning symptom that something really needs to be done because the ultimate uh, kind of consequence of it, of that is possibly that patient could all, could could suffer a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. So that's really the warning. So I'd like to prompt your listeners that not every chest pain is due to the heart. Actually, most isn't. And if you think about all the causes of chest pain, you've got many layers from the skin outwards to the heart inwards. And each one of those layers could have some kind of chest pain syndrome. And the history is the most important uh, factor when discussing symptoms with uh, your listeners' doctors. But we are concerned about pain that comes on with physical exertion and particularly anginal symptoms that have progressed and are more severe. And as I said, coming on with less physical exertion and taking much longer to go away. Can you just tell us, just here for the listeners, what's the difference between unstable angina and a heart attack? How would you have chest pain on exertion? How would the doctor differentiate between them having a myocardial infarction and whether it's just unstable angina? And what would be the treatment uh, differences? So the underlying pathology 
is basically the, the same as underlying fibro fatty degeneration of blood vessels. So in the artery, there's a plaque. If you look at that plaque under a microscope, there's a thin cap and underneath it cells laden with fat and cholesterol. The danger of that plaque is that one day it could suddenly rupture. And if it splits, ruptures or fissures, then what happens is a clot forms on top of it and starts to block the vessel off. So that patient would present with sudden onset, severe chest discomfort that is not going away. It occurs at rest. And that's the, the, the signal to immediately go to your closest hospital and emergency room to be examined, have an ECG and, and blood tests. Because when one's suffering a myocardial infarction, there's often typical ECG changes that are suggesting that the heart muscle is devoid of blood and oxygen at that particular time. And the first aid is to get that vessel open as as quick as possible. So that's what happens with a myocardial infarction or acute unstable angina. If you just think of the the road outside your house or your building it's tarred so imagine the road the roads agency are doing some tarring now you you're driving along your road and you notice a crack in the top okay because there's been some earth movement so that's similar to what happens when we have these acute coronary syndromes that the cap splits or fissures and then a clot forms on top of it. And that's really a warning sign that you need urgent treatment. Need And in fact, if any of your listeners experience such symptoms, they should take a full aspirin or dyspirin immediately and go to their nearest emergency room. We say with myocardial infarction, with a heart attack, that time is muscle because the vessel is blocked off the heart muscle is devoid of blood and oxygen. And the longer one leaves it, the more damage is being incurred. And the quicker the vest, the, the, the patient receives treatment, the, the, the better is the outcome. And the, um, and heart function is often preserved with those patients who come quickly to hospital. With a myocardial infarction, there are often typical ECG changes. We had a patient actually on Saturday in our hospital and we knew that that a, a particular vessel was blocked. He was taken urgent, urgently to the cardiac catheterization laboratory for an angiogram and the cardiologist will then inject radioiodine um, dye into the vessels to get a roadmap and one can see immediately where the problem, problem is. And in that particular patient, his right coronary artery had suddenly blocked off and they passed a wire across it, opened it, opened it with a balloon and restored flow. So the quicker one restores flow to the heart muscle, the better is the outcome. And as I said before, time is muscle. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Disco Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Person. We speak to Dr. David Jankalo, cardiologist at Netkillingsfield Hospital, and we're speaking about angina and angina awareness and angina prevention. Um, so besides the symptoms, Dave, will you see anything on ECG or bloods when you have unstable angina? Or that only comes when you're actually the, having muscle that's soft? When patients come to our hospital or to any emergency room, 
any chest discomfort that is not going away, that should be evaluated carefully with a good history, clinical examination, ECG. On occasion, you don't see ECG changes. The symptoms are often typical, but if they're continuing, especially in a person with risk factors for coronary disease, often the diagnosis provisionally is unstable angina until proven otherwise. You know, you also have to look at the population that comes to, comes to us or the hospitals or the emergency room presenting with symptoms because if you have a 20 year old young lady or young man without any risk factors, the chance of having blocked arteries is extremely remote. But if you start to have people in their middle age or older who are hypertensive, diabetic, high cholesterol, smoker, the more risk factors you have, the chance of having uh, artery disease, coronary artery disease must, must be, must be much greater. So in a casualty setting, that patient would be screened, an ECG would be done. Um, immediately if the casualty officer or the physician or cardiologist are concerned, they would administer uh, a full aspirin or dyspirin tablet. Aspirin and dyspirin is exactly the same. And, um, Blood test, bloods would be drawn for what we call cardiac enzymes. Because if you block the vessel off to the muscle, you start to release heart muscle enzymes, which you can measure. They're called the cardiac enzymes. And the most specific one is called troponin T. But sometimes very early on in a heart attack, it can actually be negative. So we don't let patients with ongoing chest discomfort that are fitting that fits into these parameters, we don't let them go home. We would admit them and treat them provisionally as unstable angina, and we would do repeated ECGs and cardiac enzymes. If the patient is truly having a myocardial infarction, and there are typical ECG changes that the heart muscle is severely devoid of blood and oxygen, then the treatment would be to perform a coronary angiogram as soon as possible with a view to either angioplasty and stenting to open up the um, culprit artery or culprit uh, narrowings. And sometimes patients actually require bypass surgery when there's multivessel disease. Can you just maybe explain why people need to take the disparin or the aspirin, what it actually does? Because if you imagine, um, and it's a pity that I can't show you visually, that when you have a plaque in a vessel, okay, you have this cap that splits. And when it splits, little cells that are produced by the bone marrow are called platelets. So when you cut yourself, the platelets come and plug the hole, and that forms the scaffold for a clot to form, okay? And the aspirin and dyspirin is what we call an antiplatelet agent. And with a myocardial infarction, Giving one disparin tablet can actually save lives. There's a significant reduction in in events and even deaths. So disparin is very, very important in the armamentarium. I just want to just make one point to your listeners. Where people have blood vessel disease, they're all placed on low-dose secondary prevention with aspirin. It used to be thought that when patients are hypertensive, they're diabetic, high cholesterol, they're smokers, the GPs, physicians, and even us cardiologists have have felt in the past perhaps taking a baby aspirin would make a difference. 
But if that patient doesn't have clinical blood vessel disease, then giving low-dose aspirin for primary prevention is now out of the guidelines because there are a number of big studies that have come out in the last few years that have shown that there's more bleeding from the gastrointestinal tract. It could be bleeding in the brain. And the reduction in the incidence of heart attacks is actually extremely small. So we don't give low-dose aspirin for primary prevention anymore. That's out. That was and what about what what about for for uh, stroke? Okay. The same pathogenesis for stroke as well. We um, we would. So you give, don't give the aspirin. You don't give the aspirin either. Not for primary prevention. Okay, but if there's blood vessel disease, either in the heart arteries or the arteries going to the brain, or in the aorta or in the blood vessels to the legs, uh, that is called peripheral vascular disease. Every one of those patients should be on low dose secondary prevention with aspirin. Okay. But not, we don't give it for primary prevention when people have got hypertension, diabetes and high cholesterol. We only give it when there's confirmed vascular disease or that patient has had a vascular event, either heart attack, angina, stent, bypass, angioplasty, or they've got disease in their carotid arteries going to the brain or peripheral vascular disease. The other thing that is extremely important in the treatment of this disease because it's a metabolic disease, okay, and we can come back to the risk factors just now. In those patients, we give aggressive cholesterol lowering because the trials have shown that the lower you get your bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, there's a reduction in deaths, heart attacks, and subsequent events. So for every one millimole per liter that you lower your cholesterol, and it doesn't matter how you do it, um, and, and we particularly target the higher risk patients, that translates to approximately a 20% reduction in future events. So lower is better. The South African Heart Association has drawn up position statements for the treatment of cholesterol, dyslipidemia. We are an affiliate member of the European Society of Cardiology, and we adopt their guidelines as our own. And the guidelines from the European Society of Cardiology are very similar to the American guidelines. And every time the ESC comes out with new guidelines, and the last guideline that they, they came out with was in 2019, the targets become lower because the evidence is that lower is better. And if you take every cholesterol trial ever done and you plot a graph and you plot the mean treated cholesterol or bad cholesterol called LDL versus the event rate in that trial, and if you plot all those trials, you end up with a linear line that lower is better. So there's no threshold that you can't achieve benefit by going lower. So and that's why the guidelines is particularly in high risk patients. You should at least at least you should achieve at least a fifty percent reduction from baseline. And there are certain targets that we aim for. And there's lots of drugs that we can use to achieve that. Because as I said to you, this is a metabolic disease. It's not, um, you know, when you open the faucet of your tap, blood fl- um, the water flows because of pressure. The same thing happens in the cardiovascular system. Blood flows because of pressure, changes in pressure. And 
the, but your blood vessels are not um, are not rigid uh, plumbing pipes as in the wall. They are organs with multiple layers, and they respond to chemical messengers, and they can become damaged. And particularly, this process of atherosclerosis can 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 lead to dire consequences. So that's that's the the two important medications in patients with underlying atherosclerosis is aspirin or dyspirin. Aspirin dyspirin is the same. High dose cholesterol lowering, which is generally a statin, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes we have to actually add further cholesterol medication because we can't get to what we consider gold. And there is a medication called azetamide, which prevents gut reabsorption of cholesterol. And if you add that onto the statins synergistically, you can get a much lower, a much lower value. So, um, so that's how we approach secondary prevention. But in patients with angina, we, um, we, there are other medications to prevent angina for those patients who have blocked arteries and those could be beta blockers, they could be calcium channel antagonists, or they could be nitrates. And we would decide individually which medication to actually give those patients. You with me there, D? Do you want to talk about just uh, uh, maybe getting the blood pressure under control? And uh, you mentioned cholesterol, the blood pressure, and maybe the um, hypertension. What are the uh, usual figures that you would want? And... Uh, what medication would you give? Okay, so uh, uh, so you, you, can you just repeat that because the signal just dropped. So you, we're, we're speaking about prevention and you mentioned a lot about cholesterol. I just wanted to find out about blood pressure and diabetes, what figures you would want, also what medication you would give as uh, prevention to control the type 2 diabetes. And so in terms of for vascular disease, there are non-modifiable factors such as genetic and population factors and gender factors. We worry about patients who come to us and say, my father had a heart attack at at 50, my sister had a stent, my brother had a bypass, because firstly, there may be something genetically in those those, uh, individuals from the family that puts them at much greater risk. And there's nothing you can do about your, your genetic or population factors. But what you can do is you can control your reversible risk factors. The most important risk factor is smoking. And, and, uh, that's why, um, you know, you can't go smoke in a public space. You can't, you can't expose others to, um, passive smoking. So, um, you know, smoking is extremely important. And the next risk factor that's important is elevated cholesterol, dyslipidemia. You know, if I could just come back to that, there are other risk factors such as hypertension, diabetes, being overweight and obese, sedentary lifestyle, poor diet. All those factors count. Now, when we see patients, we try to assess their risk, okay? You know, it's quite difficult to to get risk over to, to, to patients. You know, you can take blood pressure, you can... Uh, dipsticks to urine, you can send blood away, but to put that all in context of what is your future risk is very, very difficult and sometimes difficult for patients to understand. But what is important, the more of those vascular risk factors that you have, 
They don't add to one another. They, they multiply one another. So more risk factors can put people at greater risk and you try to assess that and get that through to people that they need to change their lifestyles. In terms of, um, uh, I'd like to tell you about a big study and um, it was a case control study of 52 countries of thousands of survivors of heart attacks. And they looked at the factors of why those patients suffered a heart attack or a myocardial infarction compared to those who didn't. And these common risk factors, which I've outlined, came out important. And the most two, to, the most important two together were smoking and high cholesterol. So that's the important thing is for patients to understand that everyone should look at themselves, try to assess what is my risk profile, and try to change lifestyle to improve those risk factors. Because the lifestyle adaptation can can result in uh, significant benefits. In terms of hypertension that you asked me, uh, asked me about, that we, we, there are two parameters in hypertension, the systolic, the top reading, and the diastolic, which is, um, is the lower reading. So the systolic is the pressure when the heart is contracting, and the diastolic is the pressure when the heart is relaxed. And the threshold for the diagnosis of hypertension is persistently about 140-90. It doesn't mean that between 140 to 149 and 90 to 90, 90 to 99 that those patients necessarily require drug treatment. It, it, it may well be that the first uh, strategy and port of call would be lifestyle adaptation. Dieting, losing weight, exercising, reducing alcohol can sometimes result in blood pressure normalizing. We treat blood pressure to prevent stroke. That's the main thing, but it is a contributing factor for vascular disease. And ultimately, if the blood pressure is high for the heart muscle to thicken and for patients sometimes to even develop heart failure. So it's a complicated story and I don't want to make it complicated I want to make it as simple as possible. Dave, we're going to take a a short uh, ad break right now. And then when we come back, we can uh, speak about maybe some lifestyle changes as well. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. David Janklow, cardiologist. We're speaking about a giant awareness. Dave, can you tell us about what happens when a patient comes to their cardiologist or their physician, their doctor with the angina? What's the process? Okay, firstly, a careful history, careful examination, then an ECG, and then in, in all circumstances, unless the, pa- pa- unless the patient is unstable, we would be doing some form of exercise stress testing. And what we're looking for is signs on the ECG that suggest that this patient does truly have angina, that the heart muscle is devoid of blood and oxygen at the time of increased uh, requirements. There's a as I said to you, if there's blocked vessels, that at the time of the when the patient exercises, there would be an imbalance between supply and demand for blood and oxygen to the heart muscle. And then we would then be deciding 
should that patient have a coronary angiogram to get a roadmap of what those vessels look like. It is important that I've alluded to there are acute coronary or blood vessel syndromes, okay, in all those circumstances, the patient definitely requires a coronary angiogram. But in the chronic stable anginal syndromes, those patients can be treated medically. So let me tell you about a big study called ischemia that came out in the last two years, and it's uh, quite a practice-changing study. And what they did is they took thousands of people with blood blood, heart blood vessel uh, narrowings. Some of them had single, some had double, and some had triple. But they had all had normal heart function. And they all had some kind of abnormality on some kind of functional stress testing. And what they did is they randomized half to plumbing, angioplasty, and stenting, and the other half to uh, medical treatment. And what do you think the outcome was? The outcome was at the end of a number of years, the outcome was the same. So these patients can often be treated medically in the first instance. The important thing that I'd like to add to that is all those patients had a CAT scan angiogram of their heart first uh, to start off with. I just want to go back to, I told you there's a left coronary artery which divides. It has a main stem called the left main stem. And then it divides into something called the left anterior descending artery, which supplies the front wall of the heart. And then there's another branch called the circumflex. If the left main stem is tight, you can imagine the consequences if that suddenly shuts down because that whole system is supplying about 70% of the heart muscle. So where people have tight left main stem disease, at least a 50% narrowing, that's almost an indication an absolute indication for bypass surgery in those patients. So before they randomized them, they did a CAT scan angiogram to exclude main stem disease, and then they randomized them to those who were going to receive plumbing compared to those who were going to receive medical treatment. Now, the relief of the symptoms was obviously better when you did some plumbing, used a balloon and put a stent in. But that benefit petered out after a number of years. And there was some crossover from the medical group. It was about 25% you crossed over. So in patients with truly stable symptoms who you've excluded left main stem disease, they can be treated medically in the first instance. And if symptoms are progressive and ongoing, then one could go do a coronary angiogram. The decision to, to do the angiogram is left to the discretion of the treating physician or cardiologist um, to decide. And it requires a careful discussion. In terms of the medications that we would give to prevent angina, uh, we, we would give beta blockers, which slow the heart rate down. They reduce the oxygen requirements of the heart muscle. We can give calcium channel antagonists, or we can give nitrates, and we sometimes give a combination of those um, of those uh, medications. But as I said, all those patients would receive low-dose aspirin, with high-dose cholesterol lowering, 
and lifestyle adaptation. The important thing is if you're diagnosed with coronary artery disease, you must adapt lifestyle. You must stop smoking. You must try to reduce weight. Um, have your blood pressure checked. Observe a good diet. Start to exercise and lose weight. As I said to you, the lifestyle adaptation can have significant benefits as well. I'm not sure if that explains it uh, simply for everyone, Dean. Yes, I think I think that was uh, very nice, and uh, you covered uh, everything with regards to uh, prevention of uh, angina. So, what other promotion are is the Heart Foundation or SA Heart doing about? Uh, um, unstable angina or um, angina awareness? So we'd like to create an awareness about the public about uh, chest pain and what it is and particularly anginal syndromes and your listeners could go to our website saheart.org there's a lot of information and also I urge your your listeners to actually follow us on, on Facebook because a lot of public information is posted on a regular basis um, on our Facebook page. We actually have about 15 or I think 17,000 followers. And a lot of it is multimedia and graphic and it's easy to, to follow. So we want to have a public face. The mission and vision of the South African Heart Association, and I was the president of SA Heart up until March for two and a half years, I'm still actively involved. There's a new president. Her name is Dr. Blanche Kipido from Kritoskia. And our mission and vision is to ensure that there's adequate cardiovascular care for every single citizen in beautiful South Africa. So that's, that's the aim of what, what we want. And um, our mission and vision is, is, is based on a number of, um, of, of pillars, which is Science, education, um, uh, and, and, and also advocacy and policy. We want to affect changes in public health policy. We were fortunate last year to have a very good meeting with the Minister of Health and we are asked to be on the Ministerial Advisory Committee. We were also asked to, uh, develop a position statement of COVID and cardiovascular disease and we are asked to stay engaged uh, with respect to non-communicable disease, which um, is becoming the biggest killer in the world, uh, particularly uh, cardio- cardiovascular disease. You know, every single day, 50,000 people die as a result of a heart attack or myocardial infarction or a stroke. I think, uh, obviously, this is overshadowed at the moment by the whole COVID pandemic. So please. Yes, follow. of course. I mean, this is this has been going on uh, since before, and we'll, we'll carry on uh, afterwards. And just looking at your Facebook page, as we've been going on, that I see that you guys have been going on about, um, and uh, there's a lot of information about uh, use heart attack now and and Jana, as well as a lot of uh, um, public public uh, information for them. We're going to take another short ad break, and then we're going to wrap up. We'll be back after this. Pharmacists do care. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.
Welcome back to Zisco Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Dr. David Jankolo, cardiologist at Neck Killingsville Hospital. And in our final two minutes, Dave, can you just tell us um, just a brief summary of uh, what people can do to prevent uh, heart, coronary artery disease and uh, angina, just as part of angina awareness? What I think people should do is look at themselves and their families, particularly those families that have multiple first-degree relatives that have developed this disease. So they should take particular care of themselves and to address their reversible risk factors. Most importantly, stop smoking. Do not smoke. And I try to tell young people that vaping is very, very bad as well and hazardous. Okay. Get your cholesterol tested, particularly if you're a young adult or in middle age. We know that lower is better. Doesn't necessarily mean that you require drug therapy. It could just be diet, exercise, and losing weight could help your, your cholesterol. If you're diabetic, that requires close attention by either your, your general practitioner or your diabetic specialist or your physician. If you're hypertensive, you need good blood pressure control, low salt diet, okay? Um, and um, um, if you're sedentary, start a light exercise program as well. And the World Health Organization recommendations for, for exercise is 150 minutes of light to, to light exercise, which could just be brisk walking or just riding a bike or hitting a ball on a tennis court. Um, so 30 minutes, five times per week. And we know that at least 50% of people in Africa are not adhering to those guidelines. And if they did, a significant proportion of cardiac events would be avoided. So I think that's the, uh, my message to your listeners is there's no cause for panic. If you have chest pain, there's many causes. Most are not due to heart disease. But if you're experiencing chest discomfort that is provoked by physical exertion or emotion, then you should consult your general practitioner or your physician or your cardiologist. And importantly is one should think about what is your risk factor profile. And I'm dealing with a young man at the moment with a very high cholesterol, but he's young. And if you look at what his risk, we have something called the Framingham risk to determine what your 10-year risk of an event is. It would be particularly low. But if you take that same set of risk factors to a 60-year-old person, the, the risk would be extremely high. And it's important for young people to understand it's better to intervene and to change lifestyle and to to uh, address all these factors early on to prevent this disease in the long term. So that would be my final message. But there's no cause for panic. We don't want to create panic. So thanks very much for the opportunity. And uh, I encourage the listeners to look at our website and our Facebook page. We're also on Twitter, but Facebook is much bigger for us. Thank you, Dr. David Janklow, for your time. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. So remember, get healthy, address your risk factors, and have a look at the SA Heart Association. Facebook for more. Thank you for joining us. Remember all to stay safe, sanitize, wear masks, avoid going out. Hope you all have a good day. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back. Thank you, Dean and the team. Appreciate it. Look after yourselves and stay safe.